So what is the purpose of temple? We've been talking about a series of, in a sense, a temple series. It's a, I called it When God Builds because, well, we as a church, we're thinking about building. It's, a, it's kind of a big deal. This is a project we've been in for a couple of years, and, it's, and uh, it's, it's ongoing. And we're getting ready to take next steps. In fact, after our, our, our church meeting, after the worship services last week, we agreed together, yes, we're going forward. When, when these three things are met, one of those being that the permits are approved and the, the amount of money that's needed to finish what we start, when those things are there, we're going forward together as a church. And the third requirement was that we're all together in that as a church, and we are. So that's, that's exciting. But are we building like Solomon built? Are we building like the uh, uh, Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness built a temple. What is this that we're building? What was that all for? We've been, we've been considering when God builds. And in the tabernacle, they gathered together that which God gave to them, they used in building the tabernacle. They carried out all of these riches, this gold and earrings and bracelets and necklaces out of Egypt. And they could wear them and glorify themselves, or they could give those for the building of the tabernacle, and they could glorify God for the generations, in fact, several hundred years that would follow. They could be Egypt rich, or they could be Exodus rich telling God's redemptive story to the next generation. We, we considered David. The time came for David to buy a piece of property, a hilltop above Jerusalem, and this would be the place where the future temple would be built. But when David approaches that site, because God sends him there to, to, to present an offering, that the man wants to give him the property. Well, he is the king after all. And yet David says this, he says, I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord my God, which costs me nothing. That if we're going to worship God in this generation, our worship is going to cost us something. We looked at the rebuilding of the temple. We skipped Solomon to come back to him because we looked at the rebuilding of the temple in Haggai, I was asked the question, A, is, is it time to build? And will it matter if they build? And one of the things we saw in Haggai was it'll matter. What you do, in fact, and we, we were drawing analogies between all these things from a building into God's church. And what you do in building God's church, the body of Christ, building into the lives of people, what you do will matter more than you know. That's what we saw in the book of Haggai. The, the glory of that temple, though it was smaller than Solomon's, the glory of that temple was going to be far greater because God personally would visit that temple. Jesus himself would walk into that temple precinct. Now, it had been remodeled by Herod, and Jesus didn't care so much about that, but God himself in the person of Christ would personally, individually, spatially, in a place, visit that temple like he had never done with any temple or tabernacle prior. So the glory of that temple would indeed be bigger, far greater than they knew. And now we back up a step from that second temple, the rebuilding, we back up a step to Solomon. And the building of the temple on that plot that David purchased where the temple would be built, and he lines up all these resources that David and the, and the Israelites together give and set aside for the purpose of that temple. 
And Solomon then leads the construction. And after several years, the temple is completed, and they're having the dedication of the temple. And why we turn here this morning is they tell us something. Solomon tells us something in this dedication service. What is this temple for? Why does God build? And this is important for us. When, we're, when, we are, when God has told us to build for the next generations, well, a good question to ask is why? What do we intend it for? What is this all about, really? I mean, we could save all kinds of construction money if we became a church of home churches. If we didn't gather together, but we met in small groups as church. We could do that. And there are times and there are places around the world where the church needs to do that. But there's also a time, there's a reason for gathering together. And there's something about the sacredness of place that we learn in the temple that does have application into a church. I'm not saying that this building is a temple. That's not what I'm saying this morning. But there's something we can learn about temple. That temple is a place for certain things. And that ought to apply to the church gathered then because when the church is gathered together, the church gathered is uniquely a temple of God by the presence of his Holy Spirit. Now it is true that individually you are indwelled. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are indwelled by the Spirit of God. But there's something else that God does with his church gathered and his Spirit among us together that is unique that makes the church gathered. Whether they're gathered in this building or whether they're gathered outside in the rain, when they're gathered together, there is temple. So there's something we can learn from Solomon's prayer. And what we learn there is, first of all, temple is a place where they will experience God's presence. God's presence in a localized way. God is present everywhere. We call this the, the omnipresence of God. That God is everywhere at once and yet God can be near personally to you. How is that? Well, it's a little beyond us in terms of how we can comprehend God. And yet, we know that's, we know that's true. We know that God by his spirit dwells within each believer. That God does come near to us, and yet God came near in a particular way, in a particular place. And Solomon expresses that here, and the, the balance of it, the tension of it. Solomon says in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, in verse 1 and 2, The Lord said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Jump down to verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant to his plea, O Lord my God. Listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Listen from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear forgive. Solomon admits right at the start, this 
temple that he builds, which is bigger than this structure, this temple that he builds is too small. It's like building that little model. It's smaller than that in terms of a house for God. It cannot contain the heavens and the highest heavens. The atmosphere and even outer space cannot contain God. How much less any building? Then why do we build? Why did they build? Because God determined that he would localize himself there. God determined that he would set his name there uniquely. Not just any city where his people gathered. There are plenty of other cities in Israel that they used to gather. In fact, they used to gather just outside of Jerusalem, and that's where the tabernacle was, and that's where they would offer offerings. And yet, God chose this place and set his name there. And then on to the ages, the reference would be back to Jerusalem. In fact, one of the ways that the world cannot forget about Jerusalem today is God set his name there. And the world will not have peace until Jerusalem has peace. And so you pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And that will occur when the Prince of Peace, when their king comes, and he will make peace in Jerusalem and over all the earth. But he set his name there. He chose that place in particular. Uh, Mount Sinai was that place of fire and smoke and thick darkness and gloom. But Jerusalem and the temple were to be different. God has come near to his people. God would dwell among his people. I love that line. Will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Will he? Really? The answer is yes. In, in, in the terms of his glory filling that temple, he would. But fast forward a thousand years... And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us is the Word. God dwelled with us in the person of Christ. God stooped into humanity. And he took upon himself the form of a man and came in the likeness of man and was with us and dwelt among us. That God knows the circumstances of, of your life. He knows the troubles of it, the difficulties, the joys, and also the sorrows. God knows what it is to have the weakness of humanity. He's lived in it. He's walked around it. In fact, endured worse in his humanity than we have. And he did that for us. God chose to set his name among us. He then this, this, this tension, the heavens cannot contain him, and yet he's going to locally identify with this place in Jerusalem. There's something about the incarnation there. That, 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 that God in his transcendence is over all, and yet in his imminence, his nearness, he comes close to us. There's the incarnation, God in flesh, where he openly sets his name on Jesus. This is my son. What was true about the temple as a contact place for the person of God. To, to be in contact with God personally was at the temple in Jerusalem. And to be in contact with God personally now is not in a building in Jerusalem, but it is in the person of his Son. That's where God has come near for us in humanity and continues. 
And God also, I said, dwells among his churches. In 1 Corinthians, well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, God speaks to believers individually. He says, what you do in your body matters. How you use your physical life matters. And whether you devote yourself to, to serving God and following his will, or whether you give yourself over to your own desires in your body, it matters because you individually, as a believer in Jesus, are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. You are a temple. Do you not know that your body, individually, singly, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? But earlier in that same book, earlier in chapter 3, he warned them about how they function together as a church because he said, do you not know that you, and here he uses a plural, you, plural, are the temple, singular, of the Holy Spirit. That when God's church is gathered together, you are temple. There's something about the church gathered together that you experience the presence of God. When we sing, we lift our praises to God. We sing to God, we sing to one another. We sing for others. We sing for those among us who this morning cannot sing. There's something that we experience the presence of God when even those songs wisely chosen remind us of particular aspects of the glory of God and his character and his person, his name, his qualities, his attributes. We, we celebrate who God is personally and his presence is felt within our own spirits. We experience the presence of God together in ways that you don't individually. Personal time is good. Quiet time is good. You, you open the Bible, and the Spirit within you opens, illuminates the words on the page to you. God speaks to you through His Word. You, in prayer, commune with God individually, personally. It's spiritually real, and yet it is not the same as experiencing God's presence together. God identifies himself with a local church just as he did with the Spirit. A church is to be a place. We are to gather together to experience God's presence. And so, the writer to Hebrews warned us, don't forsake, don't give up on, don't, don't overlook, don't, don't esteem it lightly, the gathering yourselves together, as some do. But all the more, all the more gather together Give yourself to that even as you see difficult days approaching because we gather together in the presence of God together. The temple is a place to celebrate God's faithfulness. Look at verses 3 and following in chapter 6. The king turned and blessed all the assembly of Israel while the assembly of Israel stood and he said, Bless the Lord God of Israel who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised. What he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. And I chose no man as a prince over my people Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people. And he goes on to describe how he chose for a son of David to be on David's throne forever. So God chose a place. What, what Solomon doing is, as you continue to read that prayer, what Solomon is doing is he's celebrating the covenant that God has made with his people. He's celebrating in particular the covenant that God made with Solomon's father, David, that God not only chose a, a person 
to reign over his people. But from David, one of David's sons would reign on his throne forever. And Solomon is the next in in line. Solomon is the first recipient of that promise, but he's seen it. Now, we take that lightly. Well, sure, that's just Bible history. First there was David, then there was Solomon, Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And on the kings go, and all those names we forget. Saul was not David's father. Israel hadn't done this before. They start the hereditary, the Davidic monarchy that will have its completion in the genealogies we read through quickly in the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of Matthew. Because the genealogy of the son of David completes itself in Jesus. And there's no need for any further names. There are no names after him because the promise of David comes to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of that promise. Solomon saw only the first generation, and yet he gathers all the people together. He said, God did what he said. How much more we? How much more do we? Every week then, we focus on this one name above every other name. We focus together on Jesus, who is the fulfillment of God's promise. God said, so far ahead of time, What God said to the two in the garden. What God said to Jacob concerning the tribe of Judah. What God promised to David. What God said through Isaiah concerning the the virgin with child. And we could go on and on. But what God has said, this God has done. And the temple was a place to gather together and celebrate. God said his name in a particular place, Jerusalem. He said so before to David. He took David to that threshing floor and he said, David, this is the place. Buy this place. Offer your offering here. And David does. Worship cost him something. But Abraham knew about that already. This is the same place where Abraham will be sent to offer his son Isaac. And for three days, Abraham begins to experience what only God would ultimately experience. Because Abraham does not end up offering his son Isaac, God stops him. And as Abraham had said to Isaac, on the way there, it becomes true, God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. And 2,000 years later, he's pointed out, behold the lamb of God, John says, pointing to Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. God has done what he said. Not only has God done what he said in sending his son, not only has God done what he said in sending the son of David to fulfill his purpose and his promise, but God has done what he said. He takes away the sin, the guilt of the world, that which would separate you and me from God. We celebrate God's faithfulness together as a church body because God has done what he said for us. God has kept his promise We trust in God's faithfulness, not merely in the covenant to David, but in a new covenant through Jesus, in his death for us, in the same place where God said his name, in Jerusalem. You see, there's a sacredness of place here that we, in our our family of churches, we can easily overlook. We understand because in terms of each, we are a, a, a nation and kingdom of priests unto God. We are a people bearing a priesthood. God makes us his ambassadors to others. We speak to God. We speak on behalf of Christ to others. Be reconciled to God. God has given us in that sense a priesthood so that we 
kind of look to the Old Testament and it's, it's so antiquated in comparison to what God has done with us. And we understand that being indwelled by the Spirit of the living God, I need no temple, I need no human priest. I have direct access to God through Jesus by the Spirit. And that's absolutely true. You should celebrate that. But we lose something about the sacredness of space. And this was true for me. And I didn't, I probably was really overcome by it the first time, confronted with it when, when I first visited Jerusalem. There's something about that place that grabbed hold of me. And the first time walking into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which, which I do believe, I'm convinced by the archaeological evidence and by the, by the strength of the church tradition that even by what you see in the place, the things that have been found, well, I guess that's the archaeological evidence, that this is the very place. This is where Calvary was. This is where the, the borrowed tomb where Jesus was laid and where he rose three days later. This is the actual place. I'm standing in the place, and there's something about that place that I would get up and I would go there at 5 o'clock in the morning when they're opening the tomb. There's hardly the crowds of, 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 of all the tourists visiting are not lined up at 5 a.m. in the morning. Just a, you know, a travel hack for you. Go early. And yet, there's so much religiosity there in a church like that that is so off-putting. But for me, it doesn't take away that there's a place where God did his greatest work ever, and I'm standing in that place. There's something about the Temple Mount, although it's overcome by the Alaska Moss and by the Dome of the Rock right now, and yet this is a place where God again will establish a temple during his kingdom. This is the place where David offered that offering. This is the place where a temple was built, where the sacrifices would depict the innocent one slayed on behalf of guilty humanity for the forgiveness and the removal of their sin, all of it pointing to Jesus. It all happened right here because God said it should happen here. There's a sacredness of space and place. Now, that's somehow true for the church, that we meet together with God. This, 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 um, this place of God's faithfulness, where we celebrate God's faithfulness, is also a place where, where God's people would meet God in prayer. Now, did that mean they couldn't pray other places? You pray places besides Jerusalem, right? In fact, I bet you're not careful to turn toward Jerusalem when you pray. You probably bow your head, you probably close your eyes, you probably don't know where you're facing. And you pray. And I'm glad you do. David, or, or rather, rather, Daniel didn't pray in Jerusalem because he was carried into captivity. And yet, Daniel was careful what direction he prayed. Now, we shouldn't learn from Daniel that we should open our windows and pray towards Jerusalem. That's not what we should get from Daniel. But Daniel is doing what God's Word told Daniel to do. Let me read it to you here. Uh, we'll, we'll pick up in chapter, well, chapter 6 still. Let's go to verse 14. Oh, Lord God, this is part of, part of Solomon's address still. Oh, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing your steadfast love to your servants. So he's still celebrating the covenant, and I'm, yeah, that's where I should be reading. No, I'm going to jump down. He says in verse 24, 
If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people and bring them again to the land that you gave them. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain, oh, there's a famine in the land, probably because of their disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, when there is no rain because they have sinned and they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name, turn and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servant. Verse 28, when there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence or plague or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer is made, whatever plea is made by any man or all your people Israel, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know. Look at verse 34. If your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you shall send them and they pray to you toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Verse 36, that they sin against you. For there's no one who does not sin. If they sin against you and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near, Assyria or Babylon, Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their hearts and with all their soul in the land of their captivity and pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their pleas and maintain their cause forgive your people who have sinned against you what that tells us over and over again is yes that temple in jerusalem was to be the premier place of prayer if you're there pray there if you're not there pray towards there as an israelite jerusalem and its temple were the center of prayer Now, we are not a temple in Jerusalem. I said earlier, the church gathered is uniquely a temple of the Spirit. But one of the things that tells us is the church gathered is to be a place of prayer. If the temple was to be a place of prayer, then the church gathered is to be a place of prayer. In fact, when some of you saw the title, My Father's House Shall Be, your minds immediately went to Jesus' words. My Father's House should be a place of prayer of all nations, or for all nations. I skipped over that part, reading earlier. We find it in verse 32. The temple was to be an invitational place of prayer. Likewise, when a foreigner, a non-Israelite, one who is not yet a member of God's own people, A person who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the prayer calls to the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Now we want to take that, we want to unpack the foreigner, the outsider, and how do we take that and carry it into the church? Jesus took the outsider and carried them 
into the church. Ephesians chapter 2 says that you who once were afar off have been brought near to Jesus by the blood of Christ. And he is our peace. We are to be an invitational assembly, praying together that this is a place where we receive and celebrate God's forgiveness and his restoration. That as the temple was, so the church today, so God's people gathered together. Whether it's in a smaller group or a bigger group, God's people gathered together. We are to have a place where we can confess together, that we can receive forgiveness, that we can participate in God's restoration, the building up. We have said that our church's mission is to go to others around you, to bring them into God's family. And that includes the bringing them in contact with those who are part of God's family, and the, the other side of that is, is bringing them to a shared faith where they also become part of God's family. And then building up one another as followers of Jesus in the family. And that's what's described here. Among Israel, when they confess their sins, do you remember that part where I read? When they confess their sins, for there is none among you who does not sin. You've heard something like that before, haven't you? In 1 John chapter 1, John, the aged apostle by this time, he writes to the church and he says, for if we say that we have no sin, if we were to say that we don't sin, we deceive ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful. And he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful to do it because this is what he promised he would do for us. God is just and right. God doesn't break any rules in forgiving your guilt because it's been paid for in full by Jesus. So then, the temple is a place to receive God's forgiveness and restoration. And so for the church as being built up together as a temple. We are a place of confession, not of pretending, but of forgiveness. We then live in that forgiveness. We, we live it out to people around us. Are, are, are we not instructed? Forgive, bear, bear with one another and forgive one another even as God in Christ has forgiven you. We are to be known as a people who forgive. Why? Because God is a person who forgives. And so the family resemblance in us, it looks like forgiveness. It's one of the essentials that's there, in fact. Forgiving one another through willing sacrifice, giving ourselves for others and their needs. I could close this out. That the temple, what's true for Solomon that the temple was a place of God's presence, a place where they celebrated God's faithfulness, that God keeps his covenant. A, a temple is a place where they met God in prayer. A temple is a place where they received and, and celebrated receiving God's forgiveness and restoration. So then, that is what a church gathered together must be. Why would we build the place to gather? We build the place to gather for the generations that come behind us so that they as well experience God's presence together. 
They could celebrate, even for the benefit of people around them, celebrating God's faithfulness, meeting in prayer, prayer that also is extended to invite others into this same confession, forgiveness, and restoration. Solomon has a a closing prayer, I would call it, in verses 40 to 42. He says, Now, O my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might dwell here among us in this temple, he's saying. Let your priests, O Lord, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Solomon is praying for himself here. Lord, do not turn my face away in these things that I have requested. Hear my prayer. Lord, remember your steadfast love for the sake of David, your servant. We can grab hold of that prayer. Maybe I would express it something like this. Lord, see our needs as a church together. Lord, you know them better than we do. Hear our requests, Father, but look from heaven and see our needs. Answer them as you know them to be. Lord, may we too experience the the power of your presence. May we see something more of you because we have been together. Would you lift our spirits together in worship in ways that change how we walk out of here and into our week. Father, would you be changing us? Might your salvation so rest upon us that we are changed and transformed by it? That you are making us more and more into the image of Jesus, your Savior. Father, do the work in us that you know is needed. Change us. Father, let us experience the blessing that you have for your people. Blessing that might not even be on the world's terms of wealth or prosperity or ease. Father, it might be more the way of your son in the terms of hardship and sacrifice. Even a lack of rest. But Father, may we experience even in that the blessing of fellowship with you, of oneness with you, of knowing our identity is with Christ as your child. Father, don't turn away from our needs nor our prayers, but Lord, hear them for the sake of Jesus your anointed one. Hear them for the sake of Jesus on the basis of the new covenant in him. Lord, because that's what we claim when in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.